This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Justice League Crossover Podcast. I am JT from True Crime Lab Podcast, and I am joined by so many other people. It is the biggest crossover that I have ever been a part of or heard about, so I'm really excited. So I'm going to pass it over to Rach. Hey, I'm Rachel. I'm one half of Mad or Bad True Crime Podcast, and we are from the UK. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Amy. And we're from Eat Crime, also in the United States. I'm Kira, and I'm the host of Murder and More, and I'm in the UK. I am Terry, the host of True Crime and Wine Time, and I am located in Texas. This is Genevieve Germain. I'm from True Crime Real Time, and I'm located in Canada. All right. Thanks, everybody, for introducing yourself. What we're going to do today for all of our listeners is we are each give a case to everybody else. And then every time that somebody tells a case, then we're going to talk about it, break it down a little bit afterwards and move on to the next one. So this is going to be a fun filled crossover. I'm really excited about it. And I have the pleasure of setting the bar, and it shall be set very low. You've been warned. So we're going to hop into my case with Harry Powers, who is also known as the Bluebeard from Quiet Dell or the Lonely Hearts ad killer. And oh. uh, I picked him because, well, he's kind of from around my general area and his name was Harry Powers and it made me chuckle. Harry Powers was born Harm Drenth on November 17th, 1893 in Berta Groningen, Netherlands. I hope I said that right. He went by a few other names during his life, including John Schroeder. Cornelius O. Pearson, and A.R. Weaver. He and his family emigrated to the United States in 1910. They lived in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and then they moved to West Virginia in 1926. Cue banjo. However, Herman did not want to be an immigrant farmer like his father. Harry wanted a higher standard of living and planned to use the resources and opportunities available in America that were unavailable in his home country to gain money. When 1927 came around, a year after moving to West Virginia, he married Luella Struther. And I can think of no more West Virginian name than Luella, except if May was in the middle of it. Luella May. So Luella was the owner of a farm and grocery store. Luella had posted a Lonely Hearts ad in the Lonely Hearts magazine. This interested me, of course, and I had to do some research into this Lonely Hearts thing. Does anybody know about the Lonely Hearts ads and what they are? Sounds kind of like uh, maybe like Tinder for the paper Tinder. Yes, that's pretty I much what it is. We did a case on Val Gunness, and that was kind of late 1800s, early 1900s. And she was using Lonely Hearts ads to basically find people to kill. I did not yeah. know they went that far back. Oh, oh yes, they, they, they do. And I'm going to talk about that in a second here. 
So I want to talk about the Lonely Hearts ads because they, they were super interesting to me. It's the first time that I had really seen this in terms of printed media. They were, they were popular in the early 20th century and could be seen as the precursor of Craigslist, Tinder, and any other dating app that's out there. Craigslist and, a dating app? Well, for some it is. That was really kind of the trouble with the Lonely Hearts ads. It was meeting somebody entirely out of context. There was no way of knowing that they were anyone in terms of who they said they were. So it was kind of like the first edition catfish. Although the Lonely Hearts ads were popular in the U.S. in the early 20th century, they've actually been used in the U.K. since 1695. And the first to appear was by a 30-year-old man with, quote, a very good estate, announcing that he was in search of some good young gentlewoman that has a fortune of 3,000 pounds or thereabouts. Most <laughs> reading it would have kind of gasped at his ambition as 3,000 pounds is the equivalent to around 300,000 pounds today. In 1750, one gentleman went as far as describing his ideal mate within those ads, where he wrote, quote, good teeth, soft lips, sweet breath, with eyes no matter what color, so long as they're expressive, of a healthy complexion, rather inclined to fair than brown, a good understanding without being a wit, but cheerful and lively in conversation. Somebody had actually written that they didn't want a bodily deformity, and another wrote that they wanted shapely ankles. I, I know when I went into this history, you were like, why is he talking about this? But it's totally worth it. So, of course, men were not the only ones to write these. A woman wrote, quote, he must never drink above two bottles of foray or one of port at a sitting, and that but three times a week. He must pay constant attention to me in company and not ogle by squints and looks. He must never get up after 12 or rise before 9 o'clock. In a word, he must be the very man he ought to be. So this is the kind of thing that the Lonely Hearts ads had included. So when Harry responded to Luella Struther and married her in 1927, I guess it worked. It was a success story. They would be on some TV show ad if there was TV. Except at the same time, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> so although he was married, Powers decided to take out his own Lonely Hearts ad to gain more money and companionship. He posted false information in his ad in an attempt to capture the hearts of lonely women. <laughs> Catfish. Many women would write back in response to his advertisement. And uh, there was a quote there that said, Poster records later indicated that replies to Powers' advertisement poured in at a rate of 10 to 20 letters per day. Holy moly. Wow. So at the same time, Powers was constructing a garage and a basement at his home in Quiet Dell. The garage was later discovered to be the scene of the murders of which he was convicted. So using an alias, Cornelius O. Pearson, Powers began writing letters to Asta Eicher. She was a widowed mother of three residing in Park Ridge, Illinois. He went to visit her and her children, Greta, Harry, and Annabelle, on June 23, 1931, and soon left with Iker for several days. They left the children with Elizabeth Abernathy, who would care for the children until she received a letter saying that Harry, or Cornelius Pearson, was going to come pick up the children to join him and their mother. He arrived and sent a child to the bank to withdraw money from Iker's account. The child dutifully left, and neighbors, looky-loos per se, were concerned about their disappearance, so Powers said they went on a trip to Europe. A little while later, Powers courted Dorothy Pressler Lemke. She lived in Northborough, Massachusetts, and was also looking for love through the Lonely Hearts ad. He brought her to Iowa to marry and persuaded her to withdraw $4,000 from her bank account. I think that should have been a clue, but... She did not notice that instead of sending her trunks to, to Iowa, and by trunks I don't mean pants, I mean big old trunks of clothes. Instead of sending her trunks to Iowa where Powers claimed to be living, he sent them to the address of Cornelius O. Pearson, 
of West Virginia. Asta Eicher, her children, and Dorothy Lemke had disappeared with no explanation. In August of 1931, not two months after he first met Asta, police began investigating the disappearances of her and her children. They began with Powers as he was discovered emptying the house of Asta Eicher. <laughs> Talk about being caught. They found love letters which led them to quiet Dell, Powers' home, so his home was searched. And boy, oh boy, did they find what they were looking for. When police searched his home, they immediately came across the crime scene, and it was contained within four rooms located under Pearson's garage. They found bloody clothing, hair, a burned bank book, and a small bloody footprint of a child. Of course, at this time, people started to arrive at the scene, and they wanted to see what was going on because, well, it was the 1930s. Police dug up a freshly filled ditch found on Powers' property, and to that I say, get some sod, man. They found the bodies of Asta Eicher, her children, and Dorothy Lemke there. Autopsy results and evidence showed the two girls and their mother were strangled to death while the young boy's head was beaten in with a hammer, uh, was uncovered, and was found to have a belt wrapped around her neck. Love letters were found in the trunk of Powers' automobile. He had written back to numerous women with the intention of stealing their money and killing them. Needless to say, Harry Powers was caught. On September 20th, 1931, while Powers was in jail, a lynch mob was formed and attempted to take justice into their own hands. And they said, you are going to give us him and we are going to lynch him. And they were actually pushed back and dispersed first by fire hoses. And when that didn't work, tear gas. Powers was moved to West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. The trial lasted five days and was held at a local opera house because of the large number of spectators. Multiple witnesses testified to the evidence in Powers' home and that he had been seen with the victims and picked up their luggage, and then Powers also testified for himself. But on December 12, 1931, he received a sentence from the judge. Judge John Southern stated, It is the judgment of the court that you be taken to the state penitentiary at Moundsville, there to be kept and treated in the manner provided by law, and then hanged by the neck until dead on March 18, 1932, between the hours of sunrise and sunset. Not quite sure why he had a European accent when he's in the South. We're going to go with it. March 18, 1932 came around, and Powers walked up to the scaffold at the penitentiary to be hanged. He declined a last statement. The guard put a cap over his head, and at 9 a.m., they pushed the button that dropped Powers. After 11 minutes of hanging, he was pronounced dead by the prison doctor and a physician. And that is the quick case of Harry Powers. So he was all about money. I think he wanted the money, and I couldn't find a total number of letters that he had sent to different women. I would imagine that he was probably, I mean, he was fishing, right? So what do you do when you're trying to get responses for any business? You send out hundreds, right, to get just two responses. So I don't know exactly how many, but I'm sure it was a lot. Did anywhere, did it say what his ad said that so many women were hookwinked into thinking he was great? I didn't see it. I, literally, what I read on here from those Lonely Hearts ads, I had to really kind of dig and find examples. So I didn't see anything specific, but I would imagine that he was very good at manipulating himself to be whoever they needed him to be. Yeah, and he also convinced people to take out basically their entire life savings yeah. without knowing them very well. I'm going to so. need you to take $4,000 out. Well, that's awfully specific. He built that garage and then dug out the basement, and this is where he, he did everything, so... I'm just going to say, Handsome Hubby starts wanting to build an underneath garage. I'm filing for divorce. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> At least get the blueprints first. Take a look. If there's four rooms, run. Also, how do you add on a garage or underground basement? 
deep dig. Underneath your house? Next to the house. No, he just built the garage. He built the basement under the just the garage. Oh, so oh. He... On the news last night here in Texas was a one-mile-long tunnel dug from Mexico to Texas. It can be done. Good case. Yeah, it was a good one. I enjoyed it. All right, so that was me. Let's head on to Rachel, right? Yes. All right. So I really wanted to tell everyone... A really sad sad story, actually, of a really vulnerable lady who sadly met her demise at the hands of her two carers. Uh, I say the term carers really loosely, and you will come to understand why. Uh, There was actually an amazing BBC documentary not so long ago on her case, which I think is still available now if you're interested in watching it. And it just inspired me to tell you all her story, because I believe, sadly, there are many, many, many other vulnerable people in our society and they do fall through the net and, and this is an example of one such lady. So her name was Margaret Fleming. She was a lady with quite moderate learning disabilities who for most of her life was cared for by her father. Her father sadly passed away when she was in her early adult years and he wished his two friends to be her carers. Their names were Edward Kearney and Avril Jones and he, you know obviously he must have really trusted them to take over her care really. During the 90s, Edward Averill and Margaret lived in a home in Inverkip, which is a teeny tiny little village on the west coast of Scotland. It's about an hour's drive from Glasgow. Margaret tended to keep to herself a lot and while some people knew of her in the village, generally she didn't tend to venture out much so she wasn't really that well known in the area. In 2016, with the change of the benefit system in the UK, basically changed to a system called PIP, which is short for Personal Independence Payment, Margaret needed to reapply for her benefits. So Avril was the one to do this for Margaret, as Margaret wouldn't have been able to do it herself. And it soon became clear from social services perspectives that Margaret had not been seen by any independent person since December 1999. So this included any doctors or any social workers or any general member of the public, really. So that is a massive 17 years in which Margaret, a lady with moderate learning disabilities and therefore a lady with, you know, health needs and needs for continuing support from social services, had not been in contact with any services at all. So 17 years. She literally vanished from the face of the earth. And the last time she was seen was December 1999. Police were notified of her disappearance and they began looking into her disappearance. Since she had disappeared, remember the last time she was seen was December 1999, both Edward and Avril had kept claiming her benefits. So in total, they claimed a massive £182,000 in benefits since 1999. They were unable to provide any evidence of Margaret's whereabouts. However, insisted that Margaret had always wanted to go to London and she had done so in order to fulfil a lifelong dream. They provided letters which were apparently written by Margaret, addressed from London, stating that she was staying at some particular hotel. However, Edward and Avril were not that clever. Police found that there was evidence that they were both in London at the exact same address on the same date as the letters. So, hmm, go figure. Margaret's former teacher testified that there was absolutely no way Margaret could have actually have written those letters to begin with. You know, she had a moderate learning disc. She wasn't that intellectual, unfortunately. She didn't have that ability to write in that way. So, yeah, go figure who actually put pen to paper there with those letters. So during the investigation, both Edward and Linda were interviewed by BBC. 
The interviewer exclaimed how the two were living in squalor. In quotes, the floorboards creaked, plaster was coming off the ceiling, and in the back room there was a huge hole in the house with only tarpaulin between the garden and the interior. I can't imagine how cold winter must have been. Close quotes. You can see pictures of this online and it's literally the whole back of the house. There is no wall. It just you can just walk into the garden. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen. And the house is just I mean, it's something else. It's it's really gross. It's really, really gross. I don't understand how anyone could live there. So the interview was bizarre to say the least with Avril and Edward. Both exclaimed how they were disgusted at how they had been treated since the investigation commenced and even went on to state that Linda was now working as a gangmaster in Poland. I mean, it was like the weirdest. I think when they said that, the interviewer was just like, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, at least make it sound, you know. Say that she's a chambermaid or she's working at a hotel as a housekeeper. Oh, but Something she's a more realistic. Poland, you know, she's really gone for it, like. And this is a lady who couldn't even put pen to paper. So, I mean, she's really, she's moved up in the world, bless her. So very, very strange. This was a lady who required two carers daily to support her living needs. How in the world could she have even gone to Poland? Never mind, you know, set this gangmaster business up or whatever you want to call it. Neither Edward or Avril showed any worry or upset regarding the disappearance of Margaret. It just looked like they were more concerned about themselves, really. Avril did in the interview. She looked quite scared to say anything. It seemed like Edward was running the show. He was the man in charge and was definitely the voice for the two. But as I said, uh, appeared far more concerned for himself really than anyone else. So police continued with their investigations. And finally, in October 2017, 18 years after Margaret had last been seen alive, her carers were arrested. During the trial, the court heard Margaret was, in quotes, friendless and lonely, close quotes. She was a young woman who had significant difficulties. Following the death of her father, and because those closest to her didn't want her, Margaret went to live at Edward and Avril's home. The murder trial was told it was, quote, tempting for the couple to have the money, but not the inconvenience, of course, of actually looking after her. So despite to this day, Margaret's remains have never been found. They've never found anything. I'm glad to report that both Edward and Avril were sentenced at the High Court in Glasgow by the judge, Lord Matthews, after being found guilty of murdering Margaret. So I think this is quite interesting, though, because usually you need a body, but there's no body. So in theory, you know, she she's technically not been murdered because they didn't prove that. How interesting that there is no forensic, there is no physical evidence whatsoever. So April, that was the woman who was supposedly supposed to be taking care of her. She was convicted of fraudulently claiming 182000 in benefits by pretending Margaret, who would now have been 38 years old, was alive. The couple were both convicted of perverting the course of justice as well. The judge sentenced the couple to life imprisonment, so which is mandatory for murder in this country, which both ordered to spend 14 years behind bars before they're able to apply for parole. In my opinion, I don't really think 14 years is a very long time, especially, you know, with good behaviour and all that kind of stuff. 14 years? For life, it's quite an amazing case. So, as I've said, Margaret's body never been found, which is it's quite sad, actually. And they never confessed. They never gave any indication or they were sticking to their story. 
they are sticking to it, it's obvious that that's what they've done. They've done something with her body. Where is it? The house itself. So when you go out through that, you know, side of the house, which has no wall, it basically leads on to kind of like a canal stream river kind of a thing. That's probably where she ended up, I would imagine. Did they dig or did, is there any record that they yeah, searched they, they for the body? Up, they dug up the garden uh, and nothing. There was nothing there. It's a bit of a mystery. I think the house has actually been either knocked down now or there's plans for it to be knocked down and for new houses to actually be built on top because it's just, to put it plainly, it's just, it's disgusting. It's really disgusting. I feel really bad for the neighbours actually because there is like a couple of rows of houses. God knows what kind of neighbours they were like to have anyway. They were probably just trouble. I mean, he is the most narcissistic person ever. You should have heard him in court. Like it was just embarrassing. We were talking back to the judge, really inappropriate and just like really narcissistic. Like you could tell he just thought, huh, you know, I'm getting away with this. Like that's it's just so obvious. Just a nasty individual, really. And she she's just strange. I kind of think she might have a little bit of learning dis or, or you know, kind of on the spectrum a little bit herself. Just, she seems quite vulnerable herself. And I almost feel like, and it's not to excuse her behavior, but I do kind of feel like she just followed him with things. He was very, very controlling and she did what he said, really. But I mean, to this day as well, I don't actually know whether they are like a couple or not. There's like, there's a bit of a a question mark over that, whether, you know, whether they're like romantically involved. What I find sad about that is. People could take advantage and do what this couple, yep. what these people did, and that is sad. These individuals already have had a rough life. Absolutely, and they're so vulnerable. And it's yeah. like, who's looking out for them? And especially over here. I mean, obviously, I know some things about you know Canadian and American health systems and all that, but over here in the UK, the social services and and the health system, they're just not being funded. So people are getting lost and lost and, and just being ignored, basically. And this is what happens. I mean, this is an extreme example, but it it's does. the one we know about. There's probably more that we don't know about. If, they, if it took 17 years for somebody to notice, yeah. what's going to come out in another 10? Crazy. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I work as a nurse myself and I've come across so many vulnerable people who, and you can see family members around them who are taking advantage. You see it all the time. And that's family members. At my job, we had to call social services on somebody just this week. Somebody was scared to go home. The person who was scared to go back to where she was living. That's so sad. We get a lot of training at the hospital on how to recognize, you know, abuse, human trafficking and yeah. things like that. So if people are too scared to say something to you, you know who to call. I'm a CASA advocate. So that's a court appointed child advocate. So I speak for the children and I just have one case and it's my responsibility to speak on her behalf to the courts. So I had to go through all the training to learn how to interpret things that she says or actions because they are scared to tell when they're in that situation. Who wants to trust the courts? Absolutely. Yeah. It's so sad. I'm Caitlin from eCrime. So I have a case that comes from Farmville, Virginia, which is a place very close to us. And I have been many times. This is the case of Richard Alden Samuel McCroskey III, also known as Psycho Sam or my favorite 
little demon dog. And I would like you guys to know how this is spelled. So it's a capital L, a lowercase i, a capital L, a lowercase d, and it goes like that. So every other letter is capital. Little Demon Dog, all one word. That's how the cool kids do it. So in 2009, a Little Demon Dog was 20 years old. He was a graphic designer and an amateur horrorcore rapper, which is where his rap name Psycho Sam and Little Demon Dog come from. Let's pause for a moment and clarify what horrorcore is. It's like, uh, you know, the Insane Clown Posse. Oh, okay. Rap and heavy, heavy music with intense themes, very violent themes. In case you thought Lil Demon Dog was a country singer. So he lived in Castro Valley, California with his parents and sister and was dating a 16-year-old Virginia girl named Emma Niederbrock. This 20-year-old man was dating a 16-year-old girl. So McCroskey bounced around a couple different high schools, but he ultimately dropped out. And in April of 2009, his parents asked him to move out. He was pretty upset about this, but in September, he had plans to meet up with his girlfriend, Emma, and her friend, Melanie Wells, at the Strictly for the Wicked Festival in Michigan, which was a horrorcore music festival. Her parents drove her to Michigan, and after they returned to Virginia... McCroskey became angry with Emma because he had seen some texts on her phone and he thought that their relationship was exclusive, but these texts made him feel like maybe Emma didn't feel the same. They didn't go into detail about what the texts were, but, you know, he started feeling jealous, I guess, and upset with her. And instead of just having a normal conversation, he, on September 14th, 2009, drank some beer, smoked some pot, took some painkillers, and bludgeoned Emma, her friend Melanie, and Emma's mother, Deborah Kelly, to death. He decided to use an eight-pound wood-splitting mall, and he killed Emma last. I think they said that her friend Melanie was asleep on the couch, and then he went and killed her mother, and then Emma. Uh, then he decided to just hang out in the house for three days and sleep around their dead bodies. And then Emma's father, Mark, came home and was surprised by a mall and was also bludgeoned to death by McCroskey. Was he famous, though? Like, was he well-known? He said amateur, so I mean, obviously he wasn't rapping at the festival, so how good could he have been? How small was this Farmville? Well, there's a college in it, and that's about it. (laughs) There is a college, two restaurants, a movie theater, and a tattoo place. Hmm. That's Farmville. Pretty racy for Farmville, a tattoo place. So uh, after he killed the entire family and Emma's friend, he moved all of the bodies into Emma's room where Emma was killed and she was laying for the whole three day situation. And then he attempted to clean up the den where the crime scene was. McCroskey then stole Emma's dad, Mark's car. And after several days, he was eventually arrested at the Richmond International Airport where he was found sleeping in the baggage claim. I just have to say I gave it a goog. Just as if Little Demon Dog was popular. He was the promoter of serial killing records. So he was an amateur, but he actually had a record deal. Yeah, and he threw that all the way by murdering people. You had a future. That is the ultimate horror core. Well, you know, and we have stories of, you know, dark uh, black metal where they... They've murdered bandmates or they've put their bandmate who's committed suicide on the front album cover thinking that it makes them like it gives them street cred. Yeah. And so I wonder if there was a bit of that here on top of the emotions. It's just like, how do you not expect somebody to catch you, 
when you've done these things. Like, you can't just go to a life of prominence after this. I've so. heard of artists or bands that murder was actually committed on stage at a concert, and everybody just thought that it was part of the show. So what happened to Little Demon Dog? So he actually recorded a video at the house after he had murdered everyone. He was like, I have to pay for what I've done. I think I might kill myself. But then he decided to leave and catch a flight back to California. But before he got on the plane, they arrested him. And this is the sad part. So Melanie, Emma's friend, had called the police and said, hey, haven't heard from my daughter. I don't know what's happening. I called the house a couple times. This boy answered. And he's given me a different story every time I call. So the police go over. They knock on the door. McCroskey answers. And he's like, hey. And they're like, hey, we're just checking up. Where's Melanie? And he goes, at the movies. And then the police go, okay. And they leave. So then mom calls the police again and says, hey, still haven't heard from my daughter. That was a really long movie. And so they go back again and then they find the bodies. And then they go to the airport and they find him at the airport. They obviously bring him to the court where he is sentenced to life in prison. And he is currently serving time in the Red Onion State Penitentiary. It is high security. Do y'all, do they not have the death penalty? Because I'm sorry you killed that many people and you hang out with them for a couple of days. They did send some mental health before they locked him up. But this prison is in the middle of nowhere. Like, if you thought Farmville was nowhere, this prison is in the middle of nowhere in a place called Wise, Wise County. Kelly, who was Emma's mom, was actually a professor at Longwood College, which is the college in Farmville. And they had to call the school and send out emails and tell everyone, hey, like, this tragedy happened. Some people that knew Emma obviously were upset, and they had to tell the people in her class that your professor is now gone. What I don't understand is if the police went to the house, could they not, like, smell the bodies if it was a couple of days later? I don't think after three days you'd smell a body, though. Excellent policing, though. But I'm thinking if you send the police to check on the whereabouts of a child, teenager, whatever, okay, what movie is she at? Who did she go with? What time is she coming home? And wouldn't you go to the movie theater to check? What kind of welfare check is that? Rural policing for you. Yeah, that was quite a case. That was now Kira. So yeah, hi guys, Kira from Murder and More. So last week I covered the murder of Melanie Hall and the disappearance of Susie Lampley. Both Melanie's killer or Susie and probably her body have ever been found. Melanie's murder has been linked to a case that happened in the 90s that also has never been solved, known as the Batman Rapist. I don't have tons of information on this case, which is why I chose it for this episode. Um, So the Batman rapist got his name from leaving a baseball cap with a Batman logo on at one of the crime scenes. And he's believed to have attacked about 17 women in Bath, which is about half an hour from where I live. Although they think there may be more victims who haven't come forward. He had a very specific MO and he's believed to have known Bath well with all all but one of his attacks taking place in Bath. Um, and one taking place in Kingswood, which is near Bristol, just outside of Bath. So he usually operated in the winter months, targeting women who'd return to their car between the times of 6pm to 8pm and then 1am to 3am. He would abduct these women at knife point and instruct them to drive to a secluded area where he would rape them. Once the attack was over, he would then force these women to drive back to the area that he'd taken them from. Another very specific 
act he did was to remove their underwear but ensure that they put their tights back on once the attack was over and one woman he attacked wasn't wearing tights so he made her put some on that he'd brought with him so he clearly had a bit of a fetish with tights. So they compiled a profile of the suspect. They said he's a white male, slim or medium build, between the ages of 30 and 50, and roughly 5 foot 9. I don't know how they estimated his height. So the attack started in 1991, specifically the 21st of May, when a 36-year-old woman was abducted whilst trying to park her car. And as far as I can tell, they stopped in sort of 2000. So it's pretty much 20 years since his last known attack, although it's unclear if the attack stopped or whether he died or moved to another area and the cases haven't been linked. I don't know. Um, so there was periods of inactivity between the attacks. So they stopped between October 91 and November 94, where one attack took place and then they stopped again until June 1996. Um, so speculation suggests that these periods where no attacks took place, he may have been in prison or out of the area for work, such as being in the armed forces, or that the attacks only took place when he wasn't in a relationship. Um, so obviously I said at the start that this is linked to Melanie Hall's murder, and that's because he was active around the time of her disappearance. Um, he actually was active on the night Melanie disappeared. So he is known to have attempted to abduct a woman at knife point in the same area of Bath that Melanie was in just hours before she disappeared. The victim left the attack wounded, but she was able to fight back and escape a much worse fate. I don't know how much I believe that he would go from rape to murder within the space of a couple of hours. I know most people tend to escalate in their levels of violence over time. But then, I can't remember when, but a crime watch appeal was out. And on the night that that aired, he raped two more women. So I don't understand why he would go from rape to murder back to rape. So I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. But I believe he's involved in Melanie's murder, but it's a theory. Right. Did, did you have anything in terms of, like, any knowledge of going from one extreme or lesser extreme to an extreme and back? Mm, I found that really odd, to be honest. Mm. I do, too. I found yeah. that really odd. Um, I mean, as you've said, though, I mean, maybe maybe it was a mistake as such. You know, we went too far and then you realize, actually, that doesn't really do it for me. Perhaps. Yeah, because I know with Melanie, she suffered blunt force trauma to the head they couldn't find out what exactly killed her so kira they never found the batman rapist is that correct no so they do have a dna profile from one of the crime scenes compared it to more than 2000 dna profiles but unfortunately they've never been able to find a match um it's britain's longest running serial rape investigation and there have really been no leads and like I said, the last attack was 2000, so... I wonder if they put it up on one of those geology sites, like they found the Golden State Killer, yeah. like my profile's out there. I think, I mean, I really hope the police have put it up there. The you laws are different. Yeah. yeah, but the laws are different in different areas. Like in Canada, they there's, uh, due to different privacy laws, There's they're really not able to do that here at that point. Oh, so, I don't know what... Here, Rach, do you know? I don't actually know. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting though to find that mm -hmm. out. Yeah. 
Definitely. And then every investigation is about at least $100,000. So depending on the budgets of the different departments, they might not be able to afford to send off their DNA maybe as frequently as as somebody else, especially for GED match, because the sequencing is a little bit different. But I mean, you said they tested 2,000 people, so they're spending money testing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, he, it might not be that he's not active. He just might be in a different country, yeah, yeah, different maybe. area. Yeah, or changed his MO. Yeah. Or he's yeah. dead. And if, oh, if dead, the only yeah. thing they have is the Batman hat, then it's probably really hard to link him to something else. I think that was only left at one crime scene as well. So. Oh, it's one of those things where like the public and the media hold on to one thing because it's much easier to digest a name like that than all the specifics of the actual murder. And it helps us, to me, this is my idea, this is my layman's idea, it helps us process that person and the decisions they made without making them like a human. So Kira, how many cases do they think he's attached to? Yeah, so it's believed he attacked 17 women, but again, there may be women who never came forward. I know even now people don't like coming forward and talking about rape because people won't believe them and I can't imagine how that was sort of in the late 90s early 2000s I assume it would have been even worse to talk about rape so I imagine there's probably a lot more people out there who were raped and just never came forward and maybe the periods of inactivity weren't inactivity at all and those victims just haven't come forward. Yeah this is one of those cases that really makes it it makes me really sad in terms of how long it's taken to get as not very far we are in terms of talking about these things. That's one of those cases that just really hits hard. But yeah, that's pretty much it. That's all I have. How frustrating, though, for like the detectives on the case. Like, all of, all of these rates, and God mm. has more, and yeah, they're not even close to finding them. So the only way they're going to catch him is if he gets arrested for something else and his DNA is put into the database, right? I mean, so basically, we need him to do something and get arrested. I think Amy's next. So I'm Amy. I'm from Eat Crime, um, along with Caitlin. The case that I brought today, it's actually kind of a well-known case in Richmond, Virginia. If you talk to anybody about something called the world of mirth murders, um, people pretty much know what you're talking about. The body of Treva Gray, who was the wife of Ricky Gray, was found on November 5th, 2005 in Washington, Pennsylvania. Treva Gray and Ricky Gray were not known around town as a pleasant, quiet, nice couple. Many reports of screaming matches and fighting were reported to, to have taken place between the married couple, but police actually never investigated Ricky, um, her husband, for her death. The investigation went cold almost immediately, and Treva's mom, you know, talked about how she really thinks that the police just were pretty lackadaisical about trying to figure out who killed her. And she felt because of Treva's drug history that maybe they just kind of chalked it up to a being a, an overdose and, and that was it. So during Christmas that same year in 2005, Ricky Gray and his nephew, Ray Dandridge, um, who are both 28 years old, they moved to Arlington, Virginia, um, which is in northern Virginia, to live with their grandmother, Ricky's grandmother and Ray's great-grandmother. Um, on New Year's Eve... 2005, a man named Ryan Carey was attacked and robbed outside of his parents' house in Arlington. He was really badly beaten, and he was in a coma for two weeks. When he woke up, he completely had lost all movement in his right arm, so he was really badly beaten. When you talk about the world of mirth murders, what usually comes into, into your mind is the Harvey family. Dad Brian, Mom Kathy, and daughter Stella, who was nine, and Ruby, who, were, who was four, 
lived in Richmond, Virginia, and owned the World of Mirth Toy Story uh, in Carytown, which is kind of like a area where there's like a lot an artsy hipster area yeah. with some higher scale restaurants, some lower, but uh, and like of... boutique shops, and yeah. there's a movie theater and. But this world of mirth, which is actually really hard to say, so don't judge me, is uh, I've been going there since I was a very little kid. I grew up around the area, and it's really kind of unique, and it has a lot of funky stuff that you wouldn't find in Walmart or Toys R Us. So on New Year's Day 2006, Brian's friend and bandmate, he was in a, like a two-man band from his college days, noticed that the Harvey family's house was on fire, and he called 911. When the paramedics arrived, they found the bodies of all four Harvey family members tied up in the basement at their home. Autopsies would show that Brian and Kathy died from blunt force trauma to the head. Stella, who was nine, was killed by blunt force trauma as well as smoke inhalation, and Ruby, who was four, was killed by a punctured lung from stab wounds to her back. Two days later, uh, a husband and wife were robbed in their home by two masked men, but they were able to avoid getting tied up by the men due to their cooperation. I was just saying, you know, here, take my stuff. And because the wife had a medical disability, so I think that kind of played into them being able to get out mostly unscathed. Ricky Gray and Ray Dandridge were close friends with a woman named Ashley Baskerville, who lived with her parents in Richmond. On January 6th, a neighbor and someone who had also housed Ricky and Ray called the police because she was concerned that the men had something to do with the Harvey family murders. And they were concerned for Ashley's safety because they kind of were always all together. Upon investigation, Ashley and her parents were found at their home tied up and deceased with cuts to their throats. Ashley was actually found with a plastic bag around her head and then several layers of duct tape around the back. So terrible, terrible way to die. Evidence from the Harvey murders was found at the home that Ray and Ricky had been staying at, and so a manhunt ensued. The next day, January 7th, the men were picked up by police at Ray's father's house. The two men both confessed to the Harvey murders and the Baskerville murders, Ashley and her parents, and the attacks on the other victims. As it turned out, Ashley was actually an accomplice in the Harvey family murder. She was there as a lookout, or, you know, on the street in the car, while they went in and committed the crimes. So the plan between the three of them was that Ray and Gray and Dandridge would go into the house and of Ashley's parents and pretend to rob them. Um, and Ashley was supposed to play the victim, but Gray actually decided that he was just sick of her and decided to kill her anyway. While seemingly upset and apologetic about killing the two girls, um, like I said, Ricky Gray just mentioned that he killed Ashley just because he was sick of her. The men went on trial in Richmond, Virginia. Um, Ray... Dandridge was charged with three counts of murder as an accomplice to the Harvey murders. At first, Dandridge went into the case and pled not guilty, but then changed his plea to guilty to avoid the death penalty. Ricky Gray was charged with several counts of murder, including two counts of murder of children under 14 years of age, and he pled not guilty. Gray's defense team worked on convincing the jury that the killings happened because of Ricky's abuse of childhood and that he was under the influence of PCP during the murders. But the jury only took 30 minutes of deliberation to find him guilty, and he was sentenced to death. Ray Dandridge was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and is currently incarcerated at the Keene Mountain Correctional Center in Oakwood, Virginia. Ricky Gray actually, you know, just because he's an excellent fella, decided to go through all the levels of appeals, tried to even appeal to the Supreme Court to change his sentence, but they wouldn't even listen to his case. I think if you hear they killed a nine-year-old and a four-year-old little girl, then you're kind of kind of out of luck. Kind of gone. Yeah. 
So Ricky Gray was actually killed by lethal injection on January 18th, 2017, so like three years ago. Like I said, people who have lived and grown up in Richmond know about this case, and there's lots of memorials and in honor of the Harveys. The store has been uh, purchased by somebody else, and they've been running it, and it seems to be doing pretty well. And there's also like marathons. One of the little girls, she went to school around here, and she they have like a memorial garden and stuff for her. So, And they were actually named 2006's Richmonders of the Year by Style Weekly, which is a magazine. My wife grew up around here, and she has a hard time even walking into the world of Mirth Toy Store, just because it brings back all the stuff that happened around that period of time. It's a pretty rough time for Richmond, specifically, because the world of Mirth was kind of a nice establishment here. Oh, yeah, and it's well-known, and people knew the Harvey family, and they were, you know, well-known around Richmond. They had kids in the school system, and it was just, I think, knowing that it happened in a busy neighborhood. This is Terry with True Crime and Wine Time, and I'm going to tell you about a case that just recently happened over Christmas that broke my heart. It's very disturbing. I'm not going to get into all of the crazy details. I'm also going to try to focus more on the victim than the person who did it. Kevin Richard Bacon was born November 28, 1994 to Carl and Pamela Bacon of Flint, Michigan. Kevin was like most 25-year-olds today who have an online social media presence and uses dating apps to meet others. Kevin was a trained hairstylist and a very proud member of the LGBTQ community who had plans with his family on Christmas Day 2019. Sadly, Kevin never made his Christmas Day events, and his dad reported him missing on December 25th. Kevin had told his roommate, Michelle Myers, that he was meeting with a man he met on Grinder around 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve and texted Myers at a little after 6 that night saying he would be out for a while and he was having fun. Little did Myers know that this would be the last text she received from her close friend and roommate. Carl Bacon, Kevin's father, met with police on Christmas Day and found his son's car in a parking lot with his cell phone and wallet inside. Kevin's car keys were the only things police could determine were missing from his car. The Bacon family and friends organized a search party and began looking for Kevin, but did not have any luck finding his body. On Saturday, December 28th, the police went to the address of 703 West Tyrell Road in Bennington Township, Michigan, the home of Mark Litinsky. The police at this time have only told the public that they received a tip that they should go do a welfare check at this address. Mark Latinsky was polite to the police when they arrived and granted them access to his home and permission to search his house. He was like, come on in. Feel free to help yourself. Upon searching the home, police found a naked body hanging from the ceiling in the basement. The body was hanging from the ceiling, bound at the ankles, and had been stabbed in the back. The throat had been cut and the testicles had been removed body was identified of that of Kevin Bacon, age 25, who had been missing since Christmas Eve. When did they find him? December 28th. So just a couple of days. Police took the homeowner, Mark Latinsky, into custody and straight to the police station. Latinsky immediately admitted to tying up Bacon and to killing him. Latinsky shocked the seasoned investigators when he told them he had also cooked and eaten Kevin Bacon's testicles after killing him. They did not know this information until he shared it. They just thought they were missing. And it makes my stomach turn. Thankfully, it appears at the time that Bacon was castrated, he was already deceased when his testicles were removed. So he didn't suffer through that. Still being stabbed in the back and then having your throat slit, 
is an awful way to die. I mean, just beyond anything. What gets a little bit harder is details in this case are coming to light. It has been reported that Mark Latinsky was married to Jamie Arnold, who had moved out of the home in September of 2019 as he and Latinsky separated. Latinsky had previously been married to a woman, Emily, and they had four children together, which Latinsky had previously been charged with kidnapping of those children. And at the time, Latinsky was diagnosed with major depression, paranoid schizophrenia, and traits of a personality disorder. After Latinsky sought professional help for his mental illness and agreed to take medication, the charges were dropped entirely. His new husband did not know of all of this. Mark had joint custody of his four children. However, Emily, his ex-wife, had gone back to court recently saying he was not taking his medication and was acting erratic again. Arnold and Latinsky separated because he said Latinsky started spiraling out of control and was having a lot of issues after being fired from his job, but swore he was never dangerous. Police said that Mark Latinsky had been on their radar for several months after two different men reported consensual bondage sessions that went too far. Both of the men did not want to file charges and said they were just creeped out. Based on the 911 call on October 10th, 2019, by one of the men, it is presumed that Latinsky had drugged the man as he indicated he woke up in the basement chained up and was able to use his knife to cut a leather strap, which was connected to a metal chain, and then he fled the home. Then about a month later in November of 2019, a month before Kevin was killed, Another man fled the home wearing a leather kilt and told the 911 operator that he escaped a home where he had been chained up in the basement. So because these two men were scared for their personal life to get out there, a consensual bondage episode went too far. They were scared to come out. If they had, Kevin maybe would still be alive today. Another thing that gets me crazy, Kevin Bacon's family has told the press and the people in the community we want you to not focus on the fact that our son had some dark issues. Just focus on him being murdered. You do not shame the victim. Consensual bondage, guys, I'm not into it. But if you are and you're consensual and you have a safe word, everybody do you. Sorry, I have a son that's gay. Hope he's not doing that. But if he is, he didn't ask to be murdered. So Mark Litsinski has been charged with murder and mutilation of a body in connection with Kevin's murder. The judge in the case ordered Latinsky to undergo psychiatric evaluation to determine his mental fitness. They are currently doing that over the next 90 days. Latinsky has pled not guilty. Remember, he confessed. His attorney is preparing an insanity offense, which, based on everything, is highly likely. On the day he arrived for his arraignment, when he was asked if his name was Mark Latinsky, he replied, no, my name is Edgar Thomas Heal, and Mark Latinsky is my nephew. I don't know if he's just setting a stage Seems or like if he's truly bunny boiler crazy, as I like to say. They do have him back on his medication, so we will see. I can only imagine that Kevin's family wants him to go to the worst prison. So one thing I would like to say, Kevin Bacon was a colorful, vibrant person, says his best friend. He loved his life, his cat Smokey and Fuzzy, and he had a dog named Hannah. 
which no. just breaks my heart. And the other thing I would like to say, if your friends are on any dating app, make sure they give you the name of the person, the address where they're going. Because back when I was around those age where, you know, you things happen, you want to hook up. I made the guys give me their driver's license for my girlfriends before they could go home with them from a club. Tell somebody where you're going. Turn on a location thing on your phone. People can find you. Do not shame a victim because they met up with somebody on an app. It's, it's sad. And it just happened Christmas Day. His family was waiting for him to show up for breakfast at 9 a.m. and he never showed up. And with me having a son who's gay, and I know there was a time that him and his partner of like 17 years split up and he was on those apps. And I'm thankful that he would always, even though it was an uncomfortable conversation, he would shoot me a text, mom, I'm meeting, the person says their name is this, I'm meeting them here because you don't know. And I can't imagine his parents getting that call and this information being released to the public. I mean, and it's important that's what the parents to say, you know, to be open to that and being like, you know, even if I don't necessarily agree with what you're doing, I want you to be safe above anything else. So exactly. Always come to me and let me know what's going on. And the media sometimes, too, has a tendency to re-victimize victims. That's why you get a lot of people who are assaulted that don't want to come forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and why shame him? So what? It was Christmas Eve. He was single. He was a young, viral man, so he wanted to go meet up with somebody, and they like to do a little kink. Doesn't mean he deserved to be killed. Exactly. And so it just breaks my heart. Um, I knew a lot about this case because the corporate headquarters for my company is near that area, and so someone from the office shared it with me, and I've just been heartbroken since. That's all I got, and I need a drink after that because I just... Take a big spook, Terry. I hope your case isn't quite as dark. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends, my go-to mobile puzzle game. Need a quick break from homeschooling your kids? Whenever I need a quick break or a mental palate cleanser, I play a few rounds of Best Fiends. It always has unique and exciting puzzles and events like no other puzzle game out there. While Best Fiends has challenging puzzles and was made with adults in mind, it's a casual game that anyone can play. You can spend as much or as little time as you'd like in this game. The game takes place in a fictional land of minutia, where most of the characters are bugs that you evolve along the way. You get a ton of fun characters that work in different ways to beat the antagonists, which are all slugs. I'm now on level 365 and have defeated almost 6,000 slugs so far. Feel free to add me as a friend on Best Fiends. We can exchange gifts and energy and compare progress. My friend's code is 169-9216. That's 169-9216. So, engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So this is Genevieve Germain from True Crime Real Time. Thought along about how I wanted to tell the story because there's a lot of different kind of moving parts. But I'll start with this. So we're going to center around Pasquale. Pasquale was often called Pat by his friends and family. He was the firstborn son of Ruth and Flavio in the apple of Ruth's eye. She just adored him. It was her firstborn son. They were really, really close. Pat was 26 at the time, strong, burly. He was a father to a little girl from a previous relationship. He lived in the family home with his parents and all his brothers and sisters. Living at home at 26, it's typically very normal for a European descent family, especially Portuguese, Italian. They stay at home until they get married. It's odd if they do move out. 
In fact, it's discouraged. So Flavio started a renovation construction company. It was pretty successful. All of his boys worked for him. So Pat obviously worked for him. Pat was a talented worker. He won awards when he was younger for woodworking. So in that respect, he was kind of artistic. They're a very close-knit family. They did a lot of family events together. The kids would come and go out of the house. So it wasn't, you know, super strict. They were in their 20s, so they would come and go. But typically, out of respect for their parents, they'd be home every night for sleeping. So if they went out to the club, if they went out to the bar, if they went to go see their girlfriends, they'd still come home at some point during the night and stay there, and they'd be woken up the next morning and they'd get home. So it was Saturday before Father's Day in the year 2000. Pat went to spend time with his girlfriend, Charissa, and her three-year-old blonde little boy, Eugene. Eugene loved Pat when Pat was around. He's always making him laugh. Pat and Charissa had known each other since high school, but they only just started dating for the last couple of months. At some point on Saturday, Pat said goodbye. He left Charissa and little Eugene and went to meet up with a couple of his friends for a few drinks. At around midnight, they decided to call it a night. I guess they were like, yeah, forget it. And they dropped Pat off at at his home. They had big plans the next day for Father's Day as a family. But shortly after he got home, he got a call on his cell phone from Charlisa, his girlfriend, asking if he could come over for a bit. And obviously he wanted to. So he picked up his dad's keys, took the white work van with them, drove the 15 minutes to Charlisa's place, and they spent some time together. His mom did not want him to go. She just she was like, it's too late, we got plans tomorrow, but she didn't say anything to him because his dad had previously kind of got mad at her for doing that and said, listen, he's a grown man, let him do his thing. So she didn't say anything, but, you know, she regretted it. She has regretted it since that day to this day. Charlie said put Eugene to bed. He was feeling a bit sick. He was looking forward to, and she was looking forward to seeing Pat for some alone time. So when Ruth and Flavio got up the next morning, Pat wasn't home. Ruth called Pat, no answer. She was constantly trying his number, and each attempt to reach her son yielded the same results. No answer. At around quarter to five on the 18th, so it was on Father's Day, Flavio and Ruth were driving on King Street East and noticed the white construction van parked on the side of the street. Flavio immediately called one of his other sons and asked him to bring him the extra set of keys to the van. He then opened the back doors. They weren't locked, but the alarm went off. Nothing seemed untowards with the van. So Flavio ended up driving that van home at, at that time, and his other son brought his mom home in another car. So not too long after this, a blonde toddler wearing a very dirty diaper and a dirty T-shirt was seen walking down King Street East alone in his bare feet. It had rained really hard earlier, but it was drying up at this point, and was around 22 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. After walking 140 meters, or just under uh, 460 feet, he entered a convenience store. The clerk was concerned. Here was this dirty little boy in bare feet, and about three years old, all alone. The boy was feeling sick. He ended up vomiting on the floor. The clerk called the police um, to say there was a child here with no parents, and can you come and check this out? Constable Carter was on his way home from work. It was Father Day, so he had arranged to actually leave work earlier so that he could go spend time with his family to celebrate Father's Day. And uh, on his way, he was still in his cruiser. He got a call to say, okay, you need to go check out this found child. It shouldn't take too long. Most of the found child calls usually don't end up badly. It doesn't take too long. They just reunite the child with the parents. It could be that one of the kids got out of the house without them seeing and wandered down the street. And that was what typically happened with the types of calls that they got. 
nine out of the ten times. So he figured, you know, it should take too long. I should be home in no time. That's what they told him anyways. So when he stepped into the variety store and he saw the little boy, he said his diaper looked as though it was about to explode. He had been in it for a very long time. The clerk told Constable Carter that the boy had vomited on the floor, so Constable Carter thought, okay, let me pick him up. We'll bring him outside, give him some fresh air, probably because the smell was pretty bad. While he was outside with the little boy, two women approached him and told him that they knew who this little boy was. His name was Eugene and that he lived with his mom, Charlize, at the apartment building down the street. Constable Carter followed the two women with the little boy in his arms. They ran around the back of the building and the women pointed out which apartment was Charlize's, so he climbed the eight metal steps to the second floor and knocked on the back door. No answer. He called out police again and knocked again. Still no answer. Growing aggravated, he knocked again. By this time, he's knocking really hard because he's just thinking, he's not thinking that anything bad's going on. He's thinking these guys somehow weren't watching their child and he got out of the house. So he's knocking. He like really pummels the door and the door kind of opens slightly. And But something was blocking the door, so it didn't open all the way. That's when he got a really terrible feeling like this is not good. The door opened. It wasn't shut properly. So he turned around, talked to the two women, asked them to take care of Eugene temporarily. He needed to be cleaned, fed, whatnot, and took their information. At the same time, another tenant came out because obviously of all the noise and said, hey, Charlie says keys are actually dangling from the front door. So he thought, okay, mm, not good. So he called for backup, went around to the front of the building, waited for backup to arrive. And then when another officer got there, decided to go into the apartment uh, unit with him. And that's when he called out for a 10-3. So 10-3 is when they're called, when the police calls out for a 10-3, that's for radio silence. So that's to keep the channel clear in case they need to call for additional backup. But it's also in case somebody's listening in, like the perpetrator, they don't want to give away their information. So the channel is to be kept clear, it's on silence, unless absolutely necessary. So he entered the messy and disheveled apartment, muscles tense, ready to react, his hand at his hip to where his gun is. The front door opened up to the living room. A few paces down the hall was a small bathroom to the left, and across from it, a little boy's room. Toys littered the floor, the bed close to the closet, and the closet door open. A little further down the hall was the main bedroom. Blood spattered the wall, and the bed was saturated. He called for an ambulance, then corrected himself, make that two ambulances. Flavio and Ruth still hadn't heard from Pat, despite their many frantic calls. So Flavio, his two sons, one of his son's fiancés, and the two friends that Pat hung out with the night before, all got in a car and headed towards the area where they had found Pat, the construction truck or van on King Street East. And when they got there, they were very surprised to see it was just covered in yellow police tape. There was a bunch of uniforms and, and uh out of uniform police as well as a bunch of reporters and he went to the police officer and one of them told him well we there's a double murder so they were freaking out a bit about that and and Ruth was like praying and praying and praying that it wasn't her son but it ended up being her son so after Eugene was cleaned up he was brought to the central station about four hours after he was seen wandering on the streets by himself and they tried to talk to him because they figured he's the only eyewitness to to the event and that anything that happens within in the investigation within the just few hours are going to be essential to the case. Eugene told the officers that there was paint all over Mama's walls and that he was with his shoes when things were happening. He said he was sick that night and that later Pat's van was gone and that a man rode it. The police officer asked Eugene if he woke up and he said, yeah, and then he said, Mama's gone. 
The officer asked, did you see anyone hurt your mom or Pat? And Eugene said, mom and Pat, they are gone. Mom sleeping, Pat sleeping. The forensic unit started that evening. First, just a walkthrough, not touch anything because of the bodies of Pat and Charlie that were still in that room. So what they do is they'll generally do a walkthrough first before the coroner comes in and pronounces them dead. And then they start their forensic uh, the testing and everything. So the forensic leads first notice that the balcony door facing King Street was open. And on the balcony, there was an open purse on a couch and a pair of men's sandals. Uh, beside the living room was the front door. The front door was closed and the key uh, link lock dangling from the lock. And then the, also there were keys in the doorknob from the outside that were hanging. The door was, so the side was discerned. The door was closed at the time. So that one, it was the balcony door, the, the sliding door that was open. They walked past the bathroom on the left, and across the bathroom was Eugene's room. The overhead light was on, and the table lamp was on. Blood was noted on the left hallway wall by the light switch and radiator. The door to the main bedroom was open, and blood was evident on the door frame. Two bodies were discovered in the room, that of a male and a female. Both victims were nude, except for a pair of socks and a watch worn by the male. The male was face down on the bed, and the female was almost in a kneeling position on the side of the bed with her head and arms on the mattress, and her ankles were crossed on the floor. There was a one-inch bruise on her left elbow. Blood saturated the sheets and pillows, and cast-off patterns and splatter were all over the walls and ceiling. Littered under the pile of... By the way, this the scene is so bad that the first officers who attended thought they were gunshot wounds because of the splatter. Littered under a pile of clothing was an aluminum baseball bat with only its handle visible at the time. Further down from the room to the right was an art room. Charlie was an artist, and it was full of paints, brushes, canvases, easels, and she even had a little easel for Eugene to use. Because she's an artist and uses paints, this is why Eugene described the area as having paint over Mama's walls. Further into the kitchen, the rear door was ajar. This is where Constable Carter had knocked on it, and the chain lock was still in place, so that's what was blocking the door from opening it further. The crime scene was very violent, with high-velocity spatter on the walls and ceiling. The baseball bat had evidence of blood on the fat part of the bat. A neighbor told the police that they had loaned Charlize the bat for protection, which she kept at the front door. So the murder had used a weapon of opportunity, Anne had left it on scene. Additionally, a shoe print from the athletic shoe was left in a trail of blood. The coroner arrived to announce that the two victims were dead and they were removed from the scene. Their autopsies were scheduled the following day. The forensic pathologist completed the autopsy and confirmed that both were bludgeoned to death, struck numerous times over the head and face with multiple skull fractures and brain hemorrhaging, complete with tramline bruising, which is caused by a cylindrical object. A palm print was found on the handle of the baseball bat, but no other fingerprints were found. They brought in the OPP to do the like a laser fingerprinting unit. And what they do is they have the laser go to fiber optic cable, but they couldn't find any fingerprints. So, Sue, Charlie's mom, had a terrible feeling that Sunday. She drove past her daughter's apartment, she's done a few times, and slowed down on the side of the street, honked, waited to see if somebody would come out on the balcony, which I guess she's done before, but nobody came out. Um, at 2 in the morning on that Monday, so the following day, her husband woke her up, told her to get a robe on and come downstairs, and there in the kitchen she was told the terrible news. She was so distraught. She ran to her 16-year-old son's basement bedroom to wake him up, screaming, your, your sister's dead. So a little bit about Charlisa. Charlisa was an artist. She was just 24 at the time. She, one of her paintings, just days before this happened, one of her paintings was actually shown in one of the Hamilton museums, and her name was in the newspaper as one of the artists. And she she had gotten her name out there, and she, she loved all arts and all kinds, and she was looking into doing some animation as work. So she was 
maybe going to go into that area. She also volunteered with at-risk kids and teens. She would mentor them, teaching them art and cooking for them. You know, she was a very young lady. She was a young mom. She was out there. She was artistic and uh, just in a new relationship, just had a really good part in her life. And her mom actually thought that she was pregnant at the time, but that hasn't been confirmed. So the investigation was extremely lengthy. It was exhaustive. They ruled out so many people. And because there was no forced entry and just the way that the murders were, it looked personal. So they thought, the police originally thought, this is somebody that knew these people, or at least one of them was a target. And but they ruled everybody out in their close circle. They ruled out family. They ruled out friends. They ruled out all of Charlie's ex-boyfriends. The palm print was promising, but at the time, all the fingerprints were in the database, no palm prints. So everything was on cards. And they had about 3,000 different palm print cards that somebody would have to manually check. And by this time in the investigation, they had so many other cases coming in that the resources were not no longer on that one case, right? Because at first, everything's all out on that one case. So now they're spread out a little bit more, and they don't have enough resources to really look at this. So it took a very long time to sort through these. And this guy that was doing it on the side of his own job basically can only do so much at a time. So as you can imagine, that took forever. So the, the case remained open and unsolved for about 18 months from the time that the murders took place. And then in August of 2001, 36-year-old uh, part-time prostitute Jackie McLean was bludgeoned to death in an upstairs unit, unit four of a known crack house over this bar. There was semen found in the high part of her vagina, meaning that she didn't have sex, get up and walk around. Basically, they figured the last person that had sex with her is her murderer because of that. Leading the pathologist to determine where she was found was the place that she had the sex act was done and also was the murderer was her, that person. She had been dragged up the stairs. So she was, there was blood evidence down the stairs and then there was blood evidence going up the stairs and then there was more blood up the stairs where she was bludgeoned to death. The day following Jackie's murder, a man named Carl Hall checked himself into an addiction rehab center or home. He met a fellow person from Atlantic Canada. By the way, Carl is from the Atlantic Canada. Um, he lived in Ontario and New Brunswick. So he met this other guy, Shane, that's also from Atlantic Canada, that's also in rehab. So they hit it off because they had something in common. And one night... Carl came in to talk to Shane and sat on the edge of Shane's bed saying, I, I did something horrible. So he admitted, now he got, Carl is a crackhead and he got some of his stories a little bit mixed up, but he did say that there was an, a drug dealer that he knew and that was giving a hard time to his ex-girlfriend who's the mother of his daughter and that needs to be rectified and he was also mad that he wasn't allowed to see his daughter on Father's Day because of a restraining order. And so he he said that he killed these two people, that he went in and he was, wasn't the intention to kill anybody, but he went into the apartment and at some point the guy like grabbed his arm and he got scared because the guy was bigger than him, so he beat him to death. And then when he was doing that, the woman came in and so he beat him. Eugene actually saw him because he said he described him as having scary eyes so carl actually saw eugene didn't didn't do anything with him but left him there with his that dead mom and can i ask real quick how i'm assuming eugene got out that back open door the patio mm -hmm. door eugene because the front door was shut with the chain i think right the chain was off on the front door the chain was locked on the back door so what he did eugene actually let himself out through the front door 
Okay. And he had seen his mom lock the key, the house before, like the front door. So that's why the keys were in the lock. So he tried oh. to lock the door. Didn't realize he actually did just take the keys with them. Oh. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. So, anyways, he kind of convinces that he he's done this double murder and that you know he's whatever about it. So the next day, Shane's leaving for the weekend, and he's like, "Oh, see ya Monday." But he was lying. He was had no intentions of ever going back. That scared the crap out of him because he doesn't know if he that guy did any other murders or. And then he was also afraid, like he's gonna find out where I live, and you know, turns out that Shane actually lived in Brantford. So it turns out Carl was actually arrested in Brantford, and this made Shane like super nervous because he's found that out afterwards, saying, Why did he come to Brantford? Because he knew I lived there. Was he trying to find me? And so he actually Shane actually gave an anonymous tip to the RCMP. And for the longest time the RCMP didn't want to give that information to the Hamilton. They gave the tip. They didn't want to give the name of the person to the Hamilton PD. But the Hamilton PD knew that if they didn't get his name and his witness testimony, that it would be a very difficult position because they would say, Well, how do how do we know that tip? It could have been him that's saying it and try to pass it off on somebody else. So y'all's tips not anonymous? They are, but that went through the RCMP and not through Crime Stoppers. Okay. Is that the Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eventually they did find out who Shane was and they ended up showing up at his door. In the meantime, um, Carl was actually in prison in Brantford because he is, I don't know what's got stuff wrong with them. He decides to mouth off and assault police officer and assault whoever else. So they incarcerated him and the Hamilton police, when they found this out, they made a request to the judge to get a DNA sample from him as a requirement. So that took a couple of months. Uh, when they did get that, the, the semen, uh, the DNA from the semen and his DNA matched. So there was other circumstantial evidence, uh, witness testimonies, seeing him with, at the bar with Jackie and some other things. So he was arrested and convicted of first-degree murder um, for Jackie's death. And then he also had admitted to the deaths of um, Pat and Charlisa. So they were able to finally um, match his palm print with that of uh, his, the palm print that was left on the baseball bat. And they also tracked down the previous tenant of that apartment, whose name was Paul. He was a known drug dealer. Uh, Paul said that he knew Carl and that there was a previous altercation between the two of them. So this whole situation was basically Carl was high on crack cocaine and he decided that I'm pissed off because I can't go see my daughter. As you know, crack cocaine gives you um, some really side effects of crack cocaine is paranoia, aggression, anxiety, excessive aggressiveness. So he uh, went out over to that apartment thinking it was still Paul's. He jumped up. He was pretty muscular at the time. He jumped up using like the lamppost to get onto the balcony got himself into the apartment that way. He went in to get some wallets and whatever else um, from the bedroom. And that's when he said uh, Pat grabbed his arm and he got scared because Pat was bigger than him. And he had grabbed the baseball bat from the front door and started beating him. And then Charlie had come in probably from the bathroom and then heard everything. And then he, he beat both of them to death. Then he left. Coincidentally, he came back into the apartment about three times trying to wipe down evidence so wiped down any place that he would have put his fingers. Forgot about the baseball bat, though, and then left that way. So they did find a heavy impression um, in the soil outside the front balcony of a foot impression. He took his shoes. He threw them in different 
like sewers and dumpsters. He took the wallets and everything else that he took from the place and threw it down another sewer and then just was acting real shady afterwards. There was obviously something that he, he did. Even his ex-girlfriend, who he was with at the time, said that he came home right away the next day trying to watch the news. And he actually revisited the crime scene the next day, too, and all the police were there. So uh, he was charged with second-degree homicide, so second-degree murder for the case of Pat and, and Charlisa served uh, consecutively, so not concurrently. The trial started. He had originally pleaded not guilty, and then after opening statements, I guess he felt bad, or for whatever his own reasons, he went back to his lawyers after, I guess, sobbing is what they described, and he changed his plea to guilty so that they wouldn't go through the trial. During the impact statement, Eugene was now 10 at this time, and he came up on the stand to say, you know, I don't have a mom, basically, and uh, that the family was very heartbroken just seeing just seeing him go there. So his Eugene is raised by his grandma, so Charlie's mom, and uh, Charlie's brother, Greg, stayed home instead of going out and traveling and doing that stuff just so that he could be a part of Eugene's life while he was still young. And that's what happened with them. Coincidentally, as a, as a side note, uh, Carl had said I that he hated being labeled a serial killer, that he wasn't a serial killer. But that didn't describe him. He always maintained his innocence with regards to the death of Jackie McLean. And he actually won an appeal for retrial. So by the Ontario um, Supreme Court, and he, he was granted a retrial, and in the retrial, he was acquitted of Jackie's death, a murder. So, but he's still in jail, serving the time. His lawyer said, listen, he, he admitted to these two other murders. He's already in jail. He's not going to be out until he's, you know, 70, if that. So why would he just not leave it? But he killed them. He was, went to the... The person who he went to kill didn't live there. Yeah. So these people were killed and a child was there. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, he didn't kill the kid, but he doesn't get kudos for that. He's still, and he's a serial killer. He killed more than one person. Yeah. So he's, uh, sorry, did he, did he remember that he had killed these people? <laughs> Yes, he has. He definitely, he definitely remembers killing people. He got the two scenes mixed up, and um, in in the description it is, but he definitely, he definitely remembers killing them. I mean, for someone who says that they didn't mean to murder them, that was extremely violent. It was extremely violent. Yeah, but he was also, if he was on crack. I mean, that's not an excuse, but I've heard that I've heard that you're more aggressive, like you said in your thing. So and strong. he may not have realized it was as violent as it was, but I'm sorry. Drugs do not are not an excuse. Nope. And that is why he is in jail. And this 10 year old who, you know, saw had they ever said he saw the eyes. But did Eugene actually see the vicious attack? Or just the person? I think he saw the person. I mean, he definitely saw the aftermath. Right. 
But did he uh, see it happening? I mean, because I just wonder what is what does that do to a child? Basically, he said that during the attack, from what they could glean from him, because he went through different. Because you know when they they interview children, they go through like a play therapy to right. do that. Um, basically, what he had said is during that time he was hiding with his shoes, which they assumed was his closet because the closet door had been opened. So afterwards, because Carl came back into the apartment three different times. That's probably when um, when Eugene saw it. But Eugene said he did get up in the night because he had been sick and that when he went to go try to wake his mom up, she was gone. So he understood that she was gone and that there's paint all over the walls and wow. in bed. So it made very, very sad. Eugene would be Eugene, I believe, is still living in Hamilton. He would be, what, 23 now? 22, 23. Yeah. Yeah. I know that he had said that he doesn't really tell people about what happened with his mom and he calls his grandma mom because he just doesn't want to get into it. But if somebody's really close to him, he'll, he'll tell them. But yeah, it's, it's a sad case um, from my neighboring city, which is what I cover a lot of. Well, I'm glad he's in jail for doing it. I mean, in the way that they found him because of that other crime that she was then acquitted for, right? Mm-hmm. Justice happened. Yeah. Somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> the police still believe that he was um, responsible for Jackie McLean's death. But um, according to the courts, he was acquitted. So. And why would he confess? I mean, you look at serial killers like Robert Yates that I just covered. He's only admitting to the ones that they have DNA and he's, he can't lie his way out of. So yeah. don't say just because he's in jail that he would tell you the truth. No. A narcissist, the liar is going to lie mm-hmm. until they can't. I have to say only one of these cases had I heard of and I hadn't heard very much about it. So you guys did a great job picking good cases. I'm glad we didn't cover the same cases. Just I know. unite. Well, thanks, everybody, for getting together. We did. That was an awesome job. They were all different cases. We didn't double up. So we're going to go around and say where we can be found. Um, I can be found at the TCL pod um, on Twitter. And then I can be found at truecrimelabpod.com online. Um, and then let's go around uh, in the order we presented. You can definitely find Mad or Bad on Twitter. It is at Mad or Bad the Pod. And just, you know, Google us. We're there. We're on the internet. You're Mad or Bad the Podcast on Instagram, Rich. Let's say eat crime. You want to give yours? Sure. So you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Eat Crime. And you can find us on Facebook at Eat Crime Pod. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. And this is Terry. You can find me on the Twitter at Terry True Crime, on Facebook, True Crime and Wine Time, and on Instagram at Terry Loving Life. And this is Genevieve. You can find me on Instagram at True Crime Real Time Podcast, or on Twitter at True Crime RT Pod, or you can check out the crime articles at truecrimerealtimepod.com. Mm-hmm.